Well, good morning, church. How's everyone doing today? I have one thing I wanted to share with you before we jump into the text, and that is um, our friends over at Normandy Christian Church. Pastor Kyle Moffat was telling me about something that a church member recently started doing. Um, every Sunday from 2 to 4, he's been going up to the, uh, right on Kent Des Moines Road and Pacific Highway, right where the Burger King used to be. Uh, they're bringing out and serving meals to anyone who needs a meal. And Pastor Kyle was telling me that uh, the last time he went there, there was about 100 people that are coming for uh, a meal. Uh, and these are all, all kinds of people that are coming out. So if you're interested in doing something like that or you just want to stop by and, and check it out, every Sunday from 2 to 4, they're going to be up on, uh, on Pack Highway there right at Kent Des Moines Road. Um, I'm hoping to stop by sometime and just check it out and see what's going on. So just wanted to lay that before you. I thought it was pretty cool, something that we could possibly get involved in. If, if you have a heart for homeless or uh, justice, mercy-type ministries, uh, that's what's going on. So, Well, like Steve said, today we are closing out our study through the book of Ephesians. We're looking at the last part of the letter. We've been going through Ephesians now for the past about 14 weeks, looking at this study of uh, in Christ, what does it mean to be a Christian, what does it mean to be a church, and how do we live out of that gospel identity, that gospel foundation being rooted and grounded in in the love of Christ. Uh, If you're like me, you might have come uh, to the end of this study, something that Uh, I really enjoyed. I I hope you guys have enjoyed it as well as we've been journeying through the book of Ephesians. You might be thinking to yourself, well, all good things come to an end. The good news is we're starting a new study next week uh, on going through Jonah. And I was thinking about it this week. Whoever probably coined that phrase, all good things come to an end, probably wasn't a Christian, uh, probably wasn't a follower of Christ because there is no end of God, right? There's no end of our study through the Bible. You can study it the rest of your life, and it's, the Bible is so rich and deep that you can never exhaustively study the scriptures. There is always stuff that you can glean out of it. Um, sometimes I think when, we're, when we get to a conclusion or, or an introduction, uh, if you're like me and your Bible reading, a lot of times we can just breeze through uh, these, these closing verses. Paul oftentimes, in a lot of his New Testament letters, will say something like this. So it's kind of similar to us, and and we might just breeze right through it, and then if we're on a Bible reading plan, you know, breeze through these next four verses and jump right into Philippians. But what I love about Scripture is is when Paul writes to uh, Timothy, the the second letter that we have recorded of of his in our Scripture, 2 Timothy 3.16, Paul says, all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be equipped. Meaning, all scripture has something to teach us. So I think just in these last four verses and in the conclusion of a letter, we have something that we can learn for this or from this. And uh, we're going to do primarily three things as we're studying this passage. And I think three things that would be a good practice for you, if you don't already do this, to do in your Bible study. Anytime you come to the scriptures, anytime uh, someone is expositorily expositionally, there we go, expositionally <laughs> preaching the text, there's, there's three things that I think we, we should do. Number one is we should ask the question, what did the text mean? What did the text mean to the original audience? We need to look at the historical cultural background of that. What, are the, what does the Bible say? Then from that, we can ask the question, what principles are from the text? What principles are timeless? That could be applied to any people, anywhere, at, uh, at any place. 
And then three, from those timeless principles, how can we apply those to our specific context? So what does this word have for us this morning as we're gathering as a church on Sunday, May 27th? Uh, And there's three things that we're going to look at from these four verses. Uh, We see these three things, a report, a comfort, and a blessing. So first we'll start off with the report, and we see this in verses 21 and 22. Paul writes, So that you may know how I am doing and what I am doing, Tychicus, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will tell you everything. And you kind of get the sense, if you've been studying with us through the book of Ephesians or you've read through Ephesians, you know that Paul, throughout the book, hasn't talked a lot about himself. Even though Paul is in prison, he hasn't asked for anything. He's been praying for the church in Ephesus. He's been more concerned with their welfare than his. And you get the sense, too, that, that the, the, uh, those who have heard this book read to them, those who are recipients of this letter, they would have been thinking, Okay, yeah, 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 Paul, this, this is good. How are you doing? What have you been, how, how are you doing? What have you been doing? We, we want to know. What's been going on, Paul? And Paul says, Tychicus, this beloved brother, will tell you everything. This guy, Tychicus, we see, uh, he appears in other parts of the New Testament. He appears in Acts 20. He appears in Colossians 4, 7. He's in 2 Timothy 4, 12. He's in Titus 3, 2. Tychicus would have been the, the guy who would have carried this letter uh, to the, the saints in Ephesus. He was also been the one who carried the letters, not only to Ephesus, but to Colossae. He carried the, the Colossians letter. He carried the letter to Philemon. Paul says that Tychicus was a trustworthy man. He was a faithful minister. The word there means responsible, worthy of responsibility or trust. He's a loyal servant. And before we jump on from, from moving on past Tychicus, I, I couldn't help but think of if someone was to write about you in a sentence or two, how would they describe you? How would others that are close to you describe you? What words would they choose to describe you with? What an aspiration, right, for a guy named Tychicus. He's not, not had a prominent role in the scriptures, but what an aspiration to be called a faithful minister in the Lord, a beloved brother. Do we have that kind of aspiration for our lives? Or do we want to be known as the guy who had the good toys? <laughs> the person who was a funny guy, always had a good joke. Maybe the serious guy, the grumpy guy. You want to be known as being a great mother or a good wife, a good person. I think it's important for us to remember that godly people are not known primarily for their hobbies, primarily for their careers, for their comedy skills, but by their character and by their commitment to Christ. Amen? Amen. Would you want others to describe you as a loyal servant of Christ? And Paul writes, he was not only faithful, but he was beloved. This word beloved is kind of a special, like he was really dearly loved and cherished. People not only knew about him, but they loved him, and they loved him dearly. It led me to another question that's present before us this morning. Think about this morning. Do others know you? And do others love you? I was reading a quote by Tim Keller from his book, Meaning of Marriage, and he says it like this. 
To be known or to be loved but not known is comforting but superficial. It says to be known and not loved is our greatest fear. But to be fully known and truly loved is, well, a lot like being loved by God. It is what we need more than anything. It liberates us from pretense. It humbles us out of self-righteousness and fortifies us in, for any difficulty life can throw at us. Do people in this church know you? Do people in this church love you? I would hope that as a church we are growing in knowledge of one another, a knowledge that is deep and intimate, not superficial, and we are also growing in love for one another. And we're seeking to do this not because we think we're better than others or we think that we're special, but we We're doing this primarily because we are receiving this love from Jesus Christ and it's overflowing in our love for one another. Because in the gospel of Jesus Christ, Jesus comes to you and says, I see all of your flaws. I made you. Those deep, dark secrets that you haven't told anyone else, I was watching you. I know you. I know how many hairs are on your head or how many hairs are not on your head, right? I see your sin, and yet I went to the cross joyfully for you. I love you. On the cross, my blood was shed so that I could forgive you, so that God forgives you in Christ. I'm going to clothe you in my righteousness. I'm going to set, give you my Holy Spirit to seal you for the judgment day. I'm going to give my word to you to shape you, to equip you, to bolster your faith. I love you. Are you operating out of this love? If you're here this morning and you're thinking, okay, I've been gathering with the church on Sundays. I'm thinking about getting a little bit more involved. What, what will this entail? Let me just say for, for myself, for Will, for Nathan, that if you are thinking about coming and getting more involved and plugged in, there is nothing that you will say that we will find out about you that will, that will cause us to push you away. Amen. There is... Nothing that we're going to find out about you that's going to cause us to love you less. You don't have to come and gather with us and be in community with us and and try to put on this front. Well, if I just put on enough makeup, then they won't see my scars. If I just put up this front, I mean, I can't let others know about my sin because what what if they know about it and reject me? That will not happen. As long as Will and Nathan and I are leading this church, that will not happen. We have to put on this front. But at the same time, we, we don't want you to be okay with your sin. We don't want you to be okay with your book. We want to help with growing out of it, repentance and sanctification. If you believe in this gospel of Jesus Christ and you are fully known and fully loved by God, does it demonstrate in the way you talk and treat with others? Does your life demonstrate an ultimate commitment to love of self or love of others. I don't think Tychicus would become a beloved brother by focusing on himself and being so self-centered. He was a, a faithful minister, a loyal servant, and a beloved brother. And Paul says in verse 22, I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are. Paul spent three years in Ephesus, planting the church, making disciples, training up elders. He spent longer time in Ephesus than any other place he was at starting a church. 
So the people that Paul was with in Ephesus would have been close to him. He would have been close with the elders. He would have been close with the, the leaders, the members of the church. And he had a love for them. He cared for them. He wanted to let them know how I was doing, what I was doing, how I am. So he sent Tychicus to give them an update, to give them a report. I'm sure he knew that the saints in Ephesus wanted to know how they could better pray for Paul, what needs they could provide for him, how they could care for him. He wanted to share how he was and what he was doing. And it would be a good exercise for us to think about what do we think Paul would have said through Tychicus? When Tychicus comes to the saints in Ephesus with this letter in hand, after he reads the letter, what would he have said to the saints in Ephesus? If you were to ask Paul this question, if you were to ask Paul, how are you and, how, and what are you doing? I don't think he would respond like this. Oh, man, the food in prison is really bad. <laughs> Last week, someone tried to stab me with a knife. I mean, I'm just really grumpy. I'm ready to get out of this dump. I'm really frustrated. I haven't been able to keep both of my fantasy baseball. I haven't been able to take the boat out into the lake in a while. I haven't had a family vacation in a while. I don't think he would respond like that. If you know Paul, you read through the other letters, this is how I think he would respond. God has been so gracious to me. He is supplying all of my needs. Although I'm suffering, I'm in prison, Jesus Christ is providing my needs. He is good and gracious to me. He is merciful. And whether I'm in prison or whether I'm out of prison, I'm going to magnify Christ with my words, with my life, with my body. I think that's what he would say. If you were to ask Paul, hey, Paul, what have you been doing? I don't think he would say, I've been taking some pretty good naps. I mean, I've had a lot of missionary journeys. I've been working really hard planting churches. This time in prison has been a nice break that I've needed. I don't think Paul would say, I've really been able to focus lately on developing a good workout routine. This is how I think Paul would say, and I get this from Philippians 1 another letter that was written from prison. Paul says this, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has happened to serve to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. It'd be clear to me that when Paul said, hey, Paul, what have you been doing? He's going to say, I've been sharing the gospel with anyone who I can. People who are coming in prison with me, those who are over me, the, the imperial guard, the, the jailers, those who are bringing me meals, like grabbing their hand, saying, hey, you know about Jesus. I'm sharing the gospel with them. He's trying to make disciples and proclaim the gospel, magnify Christ in his body, whether by life of death. He was on a mission to magnify the glory of God, to multiply worshipers of him. Principle number one from the passage that those in Christ desire both to share evidences of God's grace in their life and their involvement in the mission of God. And I think it's important for us this morning that oftentimes in church circles, in American church, uh, with people who have grown up in church, they, we have, I think, throughout the past, I don't know how long it's been, 
but developed a, a kind of scorecard for being a good Christian, for being a healthy disciple, for being a good follower of Christ. And the scorecard looks something like this. As long as I go and attend on Sundays to a church, I'm pretty good. And probably if I go 40 out of the 52 Sundays, that's a pretty good number. That's pretty committed. I'm feeling pretty good about myself. Maybe a second list on a scorecard. Well, okay, maybe they have midweek uh, gatherings. They call them gospel communities or community groups or home, home communities or home gatherings or whatever language the church uses. I'll go to one of those. I'm going to tithe. Yeah. Now I'm, I'm reaching that next level of mature followers. And I'm, I'm going to tithe before taxes. Boom. Because is it 10% of, of what I make or, or how does that work? I'm even going to tithe. I'm even going to study my Bible. I'm feeling good about my, my scorecard is looking pretty good. I mean, I hand this to the pastor. That's what he's looking for, A+. And I'm going to be honest too, as I'm talking with other pastors and churches in the area, this is what they're looking for. A lot of them, ultimately. We just want people to keep coming on Sunday. We want to make sure our budget is met. And we want to make sure people are in the word. But you want to talk about making disciples? You want to talk about living your life, all of life on mission? That's, isn't that just for missionaries? Can we be real, right? What's your scorecard? You feel pretty good about coming most Sundays. You're involved in the gospel community. Is all of your life devoted to the mission of God, to glorifying him in all of life, to making disciples in all of life? I think part of what this commitment will come out of is what do you normally talk about before this gathering and after this gathering? What are your conversations focused on? What about when you gather, if you gather in a smaller group throughout the week in a gospel community? What are you excited about to share? Are our conversations after the gathering, hey, how are you doing? How can I pray for you? Tell me about how God has been working in your life and around your life and how you've been involved in the mission of God to gather people to himself. Is this what you are excited to share about in a family time in gospel community? What does what you share reveal about that? Or maybe your lack of sharing. I, I think I've been in, in a gospel community, a small group setting long enough to know that when someone is quiet for a really long time, Sometimes it's an indication that someone's really shy and they're just processing, but a lot of times it can mean they just, they're not doing anything, they don't have anything to share. <laughs> like, I don't want to be embarrassed, so I'm just not going to talk because I'm not doing anything. I'm living for myself. My scorecard on this sense is good, and man, making disciples all of life, that, ooh, what does that mean? You guys with me on that? Paul desired to share how he was and what he was doing with the brothers and sisters of Christ. So number one, we should desire to both share evidences of God's grace in our life and our involvement in the mission of God, to proclaim the gospel of the kingdom of God, to make disciples of all nations, to joyfully worship God in all of life, seek to multiply worshipers through all of life. That's the first part, the, the report. Then Paul gets into the comfort. 
Paul concludes in this last four verses with a, a promise to encourage their hearts. He says in verse 22, I have sent Tychicus to you, him to you, for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. Paul might have thought that the, the Ephesians would have been discouraged by Paul's imprisonment. He doesn't want them to get discouraged. He wants them to get down. He wants to encourage their hearts. But this phrase is, is not unique to Ephesians. It's a phrase that is included all throughout the book of Acts. And the book of Acts was the, uh, the, the Acts of the Apostles records the birth of the church and kind of the advancement of the church throughout uh, Asia Minor, starting in Jerusalem and kind of exploding out to the rest of the world as, as the apostles are seeking to live out and obey Jesus' command, this great commission to go out and make disciples of all nations. And the book of Acts records how this, this gospel, the word, advances and spreads. The church disciples are made. And throughout the book of Acts, different leaders in the church were sent to encourage the churches. They were sent to bolster, to make disciples and encourage them. And oftentimes, a leader in Acts would come and encourage them. Let me just read some verses before you in Acts. Acts 11.23. Barnabas encouraged them to remain faithful. He called, he pleaded, he urged them to remain faithful. Acts 14.22. Paul encourages the disciples in Lystra and Iconium and Antioch. He encourages them to continue in the faith. Acts 15.32. Judas and Silas, who were themselves prophets, encourage and strengthen the brothers with many words. Acts 16.40. Paul and Silas went out of prison and visited Lydia. And when they seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. Acts 21. After the uproar in Ephesus ceased, Paul sent for the disciples. And after encouraging them, he said farewell and departed for Macedonia. There's just a few verses in which this phrase, encourage them, is used. Encourage their hearts. And as I was studying this passage, I couldn't help but think, what does this mean? Encourage their hearts. What is meant by that phrase? Well, the Greek word is, is, is uh, this word parakaleo. That's where that word encourage is translated from. The, the word comes from two words, para, which means alongside or with, and kaleo, which is the Greek word call. So, to get, literally, it means to call to one side, to call, to summon. And this word parakaleo, which is often translated as encouraged, is used a hundred times in the New Testament. It's used a lot. It's an important word. True encouragement, what I think by Paul means encourage your heart, means an address, a speech, a call of exhortation, admonishment, entreating, beseeching, begging, consoling, strengthening, comforting, instructing, or teaching. To encourage someone is to bolster the faith, give them courage, to give them hope, to spur them on. Christian encouragement means calling to, to my side to instruct you, to spur you on, to comfort you, to strengthen you, to push you, to act, believe, and have faith. My friend Andrew Arthur says it like this, encouragement means infusing courage into the heart, strengthening others to faithfully endure life in a fallen world. Uh, Garrett Kale on the Nine Marks Ministry website says like this, biblical encouragement isn't focusing on complimenting someone's haircut or telling them how good their homemade salsa tastes. <laughs> Christian encouragement is shared with the hopes that it will lift someone's heart toward the Lord. It points out evidences of grace in another's life and helps them to see God. It points to a person, it points a person to God's promises and assures them that, that all that they face is under his control. This word encourage their hearts is similar to what Jesus says throughout the, the gospels when he says, take heart, have courage, be bold, have faith, be of good courage. 
And this kind of rocked my world a little bit this week as I was studying through this, because sometimes I think an encourager is someone who is just saying good job all the time. Anyone else think about that with me? Like that with me? Sometimes? The encourager is, is the person who says, hey, good job, Daniel. Nice. Haircut looks good. Beard is looking extra sharp today, Daniel. I don't think this is Christian encouragement. The person that encourages you most in your life is not the person that says, good job. It is the person that is calling you to Christ and bolstering faith in him. So a true encourager will say with love truth that you need to hear even if and when you don't want to hear it. That's true encouragement. It's truth that the person needs to hear. I was talking with my friend about this concept earlier this week, and, and he uses awesome illustration. He said, it'd be like if my daughters were outside playing, and my oldest daughter picked up a rock and threw it at my youngest daughter. Encouragement would not look like pretending like it didn't happen. Right? Encur- his job as a father would be in- to encourage his oldest daughter not to do that again. Right? So in- in- it would encourage might look like discipline. Encouraging her not to do that. We're encouraging, not encouraging bad behavior. We want to encourage good behavior. Biblical encouragement wouldn't be looking at the oldest daughter and say, wow, great throw. You got a good arm, kid. A true encourager in the biblical sense of the word never turns a blind eye, gives excuses, or pretends sin isn't that bad. A true encourager will come to you when there's sin in your life and they will not say, it's okay, it's not that bad. Or, I mean, you're looking good as you sin. Good job sinning. (laughs) I think sometimes we can get encouragement confused with flattery. Encouragement confronts sin, friends in sin, and calls them to Christ. Encouragement means calling uh, a person to Christ if they are out of step with it, and it means seeing the Christ in them and encouraging them to keep going. Encouragement is not complimenting or praising others. That's flattery. Encouragement does not mean saying nice, fluffy things that make a person feel good. That's flattery. Encouragement is not polite praise. That's flattery. I think there's a big difference in what encouragement leads to and what flattery leads to, what compliment leads to. Encouragement leads to greater love for God. Flattery leads to greater love for self. Encouragement leads to humility. Flattery leads to pride. Encouragement builds up. Flattery puffs up. Encouragement strengthens. Flattery inflates. Encouragement leads to praise of God. Flattery leads to praise of man. Encouragement builds faith in God. Flattery builds faith in self. Would we be a people that don't flatter each other? I mean, you guys are a good-looking group, okay? But I'm ultimately concerned about encouraging you, not flattering you. How often in our life do we give compliments versus encouragement? Are we more prone to say, Micah, love the shorts you're wearing, looking great with your flip-flops? Oh, Cameron, you get a new haircut? Looks great, man. 
are we more prone to flatter or give encouragement? And let me get really practical and use myself as an example. If you want to encourage me as, as a preacher, do not come up to me and say, wow, Daniel, great sermon. You're an amazing preacher. Phenomenal. Wow. So good. So good. Is that flattery or encouragement? You guys know, I already have a big head, okay? I don't need it to get bigger. You want to encourage me, this is what you say. I think, I'm not, I don't want to say that in condemning because I think the intentions are good. Like, wow, Daniel, that was a good sermon. But that's flattery. Can easily puff up rather than build me up. Encourage me by saying, Daniel, this is what God taught me through the sermon. This is what your words meant. This is how God blessed me. This is how your words convicted me. This is, how, this is what God was speaking to me. That is what really encourages me. I hope and pray that you are encouraged by the sermons. I mean, that's my goal, to encourage you, to bolster your faith, to strengthen you, not to flatter you, to call you to follow Christ. I pray that we could do that to one another. So principle two, those in Christ desire to encourage others. As we've laid this foundation, what the difference between encouragement and flattery, who would you say you encourage most often in your life? Or maybe you're sitting here thinking, I don't know if I encourage anyone. My life is just filled with flattery. And we're kind of just like balloons floating around. We're so full of hot air. Are we building each other up? Do you, do you have encouragers in your life? Those people who are sending you scripture, praying for you, calling you to Christ, sending you articles, sending you quotes, continually trying to focus your heart on Christ and who he is and his promises. That's a true encourager. Hebrews 3.13 says, but exhort, parakaleo, encourage one another every day as long as it is called today. Every day. A little bit of homework this week. Let's try that this week. Every day. Rest of your life. Someone in this church. You need to get some numbers. You need to get some emails. Let's do it. I think this is an area that we can all grow in as a church. We love each other deeply. And we are a good-looking church, right? But let's, let's encourage and not flatter. I pray that we, as a church, we can grow as disciples who look to encourage others. We can kind of grow out of this immaturity, out of mentality, a perspective, a line of thinking that waits for others, that needs encouragement from others. But we're seeking to actively encourage others. We can mature as disciples. So principle number one, those in Christ desire to both share evidences of God's grace and involvement in the mission of God. Principle two, those in Christ desire to encourage others. And then we get to the third part of the passage, which is the blessing. Paul concludes these last four verses with a blessing of peace, love, faith, and grace. This is the benediction. Paul says in verse 23, peace be to the brothers. When Paul uses this word peace, he's not talking about throwing the deuces up. Peace, right? Okay, that was bad, I know. Probably don't want to see that again. This is not throwing the deuces up. This is a prayer for reconciliation. This is a prayer for unity. Paul is praying, blessing, longing for unity among the saints in Ephesus. That Jews and Greeks would come together as one family. That they would dwell in harmony. That they would be unified. I was reminded of this, peace be to the brothers, as uh, Jesus prays this high priestly prayer in John 17. Jesus' longest prayer recorded in the, in the Gospels. 
And the emphasis, the focus of Jesus' prayer is unity. Not great knowledge, although that's important. Unity. Jesus prays, John 17, verse 21. He'll pray that they all may be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. And I in them and you in me, that they may be perfectly one so that the world may know you have sent me and loved them even as you loved me. This is a powerful, profound prayer when it's starting to live down. We start thinking about what does this mean? What Jesus is praying for is that if his people dwell in unity, that is a testimony to the gospel. It sheds light on God the Father sending his son Jesus Christ to the world. So Paul knows that if the brothers and sisters dwell in peace, dwell in unity, in unity, in harmony and in unity, they will be a witness that Jesus describes as in John 17. One, peace be to the brothers. Would this be our prayer as a church, that we would seek to maintain the unity of the Spirit, that we would be one body, one family? Is this our prayer? Is this what we seek to maintain, the unity of the church, that we would also be in prayer for unity amongst the pastors of Des Moines, that we would be in prayer for unity amongst the church of Des Moines, that we might come together in unity and reflect the gospel of Jesus Christ to our city for their joy and for God's glory. Would our prayer be a unified family of disciples on earth that reflects the reality of heaven, the world that is to come, every tribe, tongue, nation, ethnicity, worshiping Jesus together? Is that our prayer? Jew and Gentile, black and white, male and female, rich and poor, educated and uneducated, privileged and oppressed, all coming together in unity to worship Jesus. It says, Peace be to the brothers and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 24, grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. This love that is referred to is the Christian form of love. It's a strong affection for God, especially characterized by a willing forfeiture of rights in another person's behalf. And Paul ends this letter by saying, love incorruptible. It's the final word, incorruptible. It means inability of an organic substance to break down or decay. It's an undying love. It's an imperishable love, an unfading love. An indication that Christ's love will never die, will never fade. It's pure and eternal, and it's been sealed with the Holy Spirit. Love incorruptible. And did you notice in verse 23 and 24 the connection that Paul, I think, is, is getting out there in the benediction? He's asking God that they would give them love with faith, and then he's asking God to give grace to those who love God. So he's asking for the saints in Ephesus to have love with faith from the Father, and he's giving a blessing to those who love the Lord Jesus Christ. He give grace to those who love you. It seems very clear like the connection in, that we see in John, 1 John 4.19. It says, we love because Christ first loved us. Our love for Jesus is a response from his love. Paul says it like this 
in a letter he wrote to the church in Rome, in Romans chapter 5, 5, he writes, God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. I just have my mind blown as I was thinking about this. The love that we have for Jesus, for the Father, is the very love that God gives us that he has for his own son. Does that make sense? Wow, awesome, right? In other words, we need God to love God. Our love for God is a response to his love. A response that is a love that God has for his own son. I think it, this, is, this is why proclaiming the gospel, being a church that's centered on the gospel is so important. Because if we are not responding from God's love, we will just become a bunch of moral, uh, religious, legalistic people. Our love for one another will not be warm and genuine. It'll be kind of cold. We won't really want to spend time with each other. We won't really want to serve each other. We won't really want to serve our city. A church that doesn't love each other isn't really experiencing the love of God. church that loves each other is a, is a witness to the love of God, a beacon to those around it, those who don't know God from the love of God. So principle three, we see from this passage, those in Christ desire to grow in unity, faith, and love. This is something I think we actively need to be involved in. Those in Christ desire to grow in unity with the church, with unity with brothers and sisters in their community of faith, and love them from the love of Jesus Christ. Those in Christ desire unity. They seek to obey, to live out of this prayer. They seek to be an answer to this prayer that Jesus prayed in John 17, that we'd be unified, that we would love one another. Where are we at this morning? Do we really love one another? Or do we love those that we like? Do we love those that our personalities don't clash too tough with? Do we love those who annoy us a little less than the rest of the other people? Someone who has a different background, someone who communicates totally different than us, someone who, I mean, if we're going to be real honest, like we don't really want to spend time with them. Do we really love each other? Would you be able to stand up in your seat right now and look around the room and say, I love these people. This is my church. I love them. I can say that. I love you guys. Some of you annoy me more than others, but I love you. And I don't think that I love you as much as I do simply because uh, I just like mustered it up somehow but I pray for you. I serve you. And what this does is this grows my affections for you. Sometimes I don't think we love each other because we don't really serve each other. We don't pray for one another. Do you pray for the people in this church? You want a list of everyone who comes to this church? I've got one in my Bible. I can just send it to you. Pray for them by name. You want to know what needs they have? I can tell you. You go serve them. We want, to, we want to be this as a church. 
loving family, this unified family, this gospel-centered family that loves everyone. Those in Christ desire to grow in knowing, experiencing the love of God in Christ. They desire to respond to the love of God with giving themselves to God, giving themselves to their community, their church, and giving themselves to the mission of God. Is this what we want as a church? Would this be our prayer? Amen? Let's pray. Father, now, would you give us peace? Would you bring unity among your church and love with faith from God, our Father? Father, would you give us grace as we seek to love Jesus Christ, as we experience the love of Jesus Christ that is incorruptible? As we come to the cross, as we come to reflect upon the gospel of Jesus Christ, would this stir affections for us? Would, you, would we never become callous by hearing the message of Jesus Christ crucified? Would we never be callous by hearing the message of uh, the Son of God coming to save sinners? Father, would this love uh, flow out of us as we respond to the love we have received that we might give it to those around us, those in our church, those in our city? those in our neighborhoods, those that we come across with at the grocery store where we work and play and learn and live. Father, would, would our closing prayer be the prayer that Paul writes in Ephesians 3? It says, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family on heaven and earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory he might grant us to be strengthened with power through the Spirit in our inner being so that Christ would dwell in our hearts through faith that we being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and height and length and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. That we may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than we ask or think according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in Christ Jesus and in the church throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen.